When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler. And today we are doing a second episode in the We Need to Talk About series, all about Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Now, if you listened to the first episode in this series I did on Machine Gun Kelly, you'll know that I am doing sort of like a mini series within the podcast where I look at a like male celebrity or, you know, public figure and look at the relationship between like mental health masculinity and try to kind of understand like the behavior and stuff that's going on with these people. And for the second installment, I wanted to look at Jordan Peterson, which I have also talked about wanting to do a deeper dive into him. Um, I already did an episode about his comments around the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition and the kind of fat shaming, body shaming comments he made about the model that was on the cover. And so you can listen to that episode. I'll link it below as well. But I wanted to spend a little bit more time actually talking less about like events that have featured Jordan Peterson and more about kind of how he got to where he is today and understanding some of his arguments and the way that he views the world. Because I think that if we can understand that, then we can make more sense of the individual events that he's involved in. Um, So it'll be less of like a chronological, here's what he did in this year and that year. I'll be doing some of that, but it will be more about like, what does it mean when he says this, when he does this, and how can you understand the kind of foundation underneath his beliefs? And if you did listen to the swimsuit uh, edition, I do want to give a brief update because in that episode, I talked about how he threatened to quit Twitter and never did. And the essentially end result is that Jordan Peterson has now been banned for Twitter, but it was not about what he said about Sports Illustrated, but he was banned or he's not banned. He's suspended and he can get back on Twitter if he deletes the offending tweet, but he was suspended after repeatedly using anti-trans language and using inappropriate pronouns and names to refer to Elliot Page and persisted in deadnaming Elliot and referring to the physician who helped Elliot with his medical transition as a criminal. So literally saying that 
providing gender affirming medical care should be a crime and that the person who did provide Elliot Page with gender affirming medical care is a criminal and has since made some wild claims that it's very similar to Nazi German experiments, which is absolutely insane. And like I said, the only requirement is that he deletes the tweet and he refuses to delete the tweet. And so ergo facto is essentially banned from Twitter as he refuses to do the behavior that would correct the the wrong he has made against Elliot Page. They're not even asking for an apology. They're just asking for him to delete the tweet. This may change now that Elon Musk owns Twitter, but we don't have time to get into all of that today too. (laughs) And before I get too far into this episode, I do want to give a little disclaimer and acknowledge that Jordan Peterson is a person who has been very open about his struggle with suicidal ideation and substance use. And neither of those issues are reason for critique or ridicule, so I will not be directly addressing those. However, as as I have said multiple times in my own show, your mental health is not your fault, but it does become your responsibility. Jordan Peterson has a deep well of experiences from which he can pull empathy for those who are suffering, yet he has chosen to employ a brand of harsh, abrasive self-help speak and political attacks against very vulnerable people and populations. That is what I believe is deserving of critique. My hope as one mental health professional discussing another is that I can highlight how damaging words and ideas can be, and I can demonstrate that I feel so saddened that a person who has lived through what Peterson has lived through cannot extend empathy toward a group of people who are most likely to experience the same suffering that he has. And I say this in the context of bringing up the Elliot Page situation in that trans people are likely, highly likely to experience suicidal ideation or even attempts on their own lives, particularly when they do not have access to gender affirming care. And so at the bare minimum, regardless of what Peterson believes about gender identity or or political stances or whatever, my hope would be that he can understand the intense suffering that one goes through when they're experiencing suicidal ideation and considering taking their own lives. And it's devastating to me that someone who has experienced what he has experienced and has been open about it cannot then use that experience to relate to other people who are more likely to be suffering in the same way that he has suffered. It's like incomprehensible to me that he's not able to acknowledge that, particularly as a mental health professional. And I get very passionate about this because I work with lots of people who are suicidal, chronically suicidal. I've worked with people who are suicidal for most of my clinical experience. It's not something that I shy away from. And I think that's it's important to be really open and honest about suicidal thoughts, suicidal behaviors, suicidal attempts. We cannot let those things hide in the dark. And so someone who is a psychologist, like Dr. Peterson is, who is a public-facing figure, he has an incredible platform to really shed light on this dark topic that our culture shies away from. And rather than dedicating time and space on his platform to highlighting that or, or you know, showing support and empathy and offering resources, he uses his platform to attack people, usually people who are vulnerable to the exact thoughts that he has had. So that is part of the reason why I get so upset about 
Dr. Peterson's, I guess, platform about the things that he says, because it it is life or death in, in a sense, right? If you are targeting people who are likely to experience suicidal ideation, particularly in response to discrimination for parts of their identity, then you are working against the mission of the field of psychology, right? You're working against the purpose of the degree. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like that just has to be said. One of the reasons why I want to talk about this topic is often the type of commentary that I see about Jordan Peterson comes from either like an entertainment perspective or a political perspective, right? Like if you go on YouTube to watch like a video that critiques Jordan Peterson, most of the videos that pop up are going to be from entertainment or political channels. There's very few mental health channels that address this stuff. Or if there are, they're, they're not pushed to the top as much. They don't get as much of viewing. I don't want to like downplay the people out there that are, are doing this. But the element that is missing when you're only critiquing Peterson from a place of political or, or entertainment perspectives is that you miss the danger of having a mental health professional. He is a clinical psychologist. The danger of having someone in the field be so belligerent toward marginalized and vulnerable groups of people is incredibly damaging, not only to the field, not only to those people that he's attacking, but to people in general who may need or want to seek mental health services. I wouldn't seek them if this was my first exposure to clinical psychology. I I wouldn't. And I I think we need to be honest about that. So I know this has been a long intro, but I think that it is incredibly important to set up particularly why I critique Peterson why I don't touch certain areas of his life because I don't think they're areas of critique and why I think that some of his language is incredibly dangerous, particularly for young men who are on the internet, which is, oh, that's a lot of people, okay? Uh, and a lot of people that could be incredibly damaged by the the long-term effects of what he has to say. So I'm going to get into it. Without further ado, let's let's just jump in. To kind of set up, before 26, 2016 was when Jordan Peterson came onto the like public scene. So before 2016, he was a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Toronto and he had like a small clinical practice. I think I believe it was like a private practice. He mostly taught about personality theory and I'm going to talk about that more later. Um, but he was, you know, like a, a professor and and pretty well liked at at the school. However, allegedly per a report of someone who knew him well at the university, he would get very upset about having his research reviewed by the IRB and claimed that he himself, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, was the only one capable of determining how ethical his research was and that he could do it without the IRB reviewing his proposals. Now, this is a major, major red flag. If anyone has listened to my episode on Stanley Milgram's experiment, I talked a little bit about why it is so important to have IRBs review research. And so to have a person or a, you know, academic saying that they don't need the review of an IRB is not good. It's not a good sign because one, it's always better to have outside feedback to evaluate if what you're doing is ethical. It's just so hard to do it on your own research because you're invested in it, right? Like I could design a study tomorrow and think it's the most ethical thing in the world because it's what I want to get to know and I'm, you know, I'm inside it, right? I don't have that outside perspective. And second, it's quite distressing to see someone have such disregard for a system that is set up to protect the participants. 
the IRB is not there to protect your research, which is, I think, often why researchers feel like we're opposed to the IRB, like we're battling them, because they really don't give a, a flying flip <laughs> about what your research is or what it's going to accomplish. Their only goal is to make sure that the participants, the people that you recruit to be in your study, are safe, treated ethically, and are, you know, not deceived in a way that would cause harm to them. Just like how Milgram was not did not do that, right? Milgram did not design an ethical study. So there's so much evidence in the history of psychology that researchers do not design ethical studies when left to their own devices. And that's not to say that like everyone out here is trying to like hurt their their participants, right? That that I don't think that's the point I'm making. But I'm just saying we have so much history that shows it is difficult to consider the rights of the participant when you're the only person looking at the study. It is so much more helpful to have outside people whose only job is to look for safety of the participant. So Peterson demanding to not be reviewed by the IRB in his research that involves human subjects, he is doing research where he was recruiting people to participate, is concerning, that he does not think that this is important. And I think this starts to hint at a a kind of underlying process that I've noticed across his work is that he's the only one who's right. Dr. Peterson is the only person who's right in the entire world, and anyone who tries to go against him is stupid, an idiot, wrong, blah, 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 blah. Right, And he will use that very harsh language against you. But so I, I just bring this up to say that like even before he was a public figure, even before 2016, when he kind of burst onto the the like internet um, uh, uh, more publicly, he had these patterns of behavior and these patterns of like disregarding how his actions impact other people. And there there is my thesis statement, okay? It's about how his actions impact other people and the damage that comes from moving forward without any like accountability. So like I said, prior to 2016, he's a professor, he's a small clinical practice, he's doing research, just kind of chucking along classic life of a psychologist actually. However, in 2016, because he's at the University of Toronto, he's in Canada. In 2016, a bill was passed in Canada that amended their Human Rights Act, and the amendment was to include gender identity and gender expression as a protected class. The reality of this bill or this act passed, this amendment passing, was that now people who identify like as trans or identify as non-binary can seek protection under the Human Rights Act in Canada if they've been discriminated against. It didn't make any new legislation. It it just broadened the class of people that can seek like reparations or seek protection against discrimination. Concurrently, around the same time, the University of Toronto also introduced some new anti-bias training through their HR department that Dr. Peterson did not agree with. So both of these things are happening at the same time. Peterson absolutely lost his mind over this amendment to the Human Rights Act and began going to hearings and claiming that this legislation would imprison people who used wrong pronouns or dead name trans people. He essentially interpreted the law wrong and was trying to conflate someone seeking protection for discrimination with people having their free speech trampled. And he he made it into a free speech issue. So you can see why he took off in America quite well, right? Because he he turned to, to the free speech argument. And I don't, I'm not a lawyer. You know, I'm not a constitutional scholar. I don't know the differences between Canada and America's free speech laws. I would imagine that they are different since they're different countries. So, you know, I'm not I'm not quite sure what he was talking about, but I can say with quite certainty that Dr. Peterson is also not a lawyer or a constitutional scholar. He's a clinical psychologist. So 
it's entirely possible that he interpreted this law wrong. It would behoove him to seek some consultation with someone who has the skills to read the law. Um, But instead, what he did was he made this his entire platform for the time being. As he talked at more hearings and gave more and more lectures or presentations where he said that this law violated free speech, he started to go viral. And clips of these speeches of him yelling about this law spread across the internet. And this is what really kicked off his more public-facing career. And from this point in 2016 on, we see him start to move away from academia and move more toward essentially a career as an influencer, where most of his time is spent producing content for internet platforms. I I do want to back up and and make a note about my point that he's not a lawyer or constitutional scholar. He does have some background in political theory. I believe that was his undergraduate work was in political theory, which is more about things like the difference between capitalism and communism. Um, and and the the theories behind different political systems. It is not the same thing as being a constitutional scholar. It is not the same thing as being a lawyer, but he does have some background in political theory. However, his main training is in clinical psychology, which is a fantastic training. I am in training to become a licensed clinical psychologist myself. I have a PhD in psychology. Like, I get it. I love the training. I love the, the field. But I do know that being a psychologist does not make me a political scholar. And although I have political opinions and I have made them clear in my, you know, some of my episodes here, those are my opinion. And I know that that is different than being an expert in things like the Constitution or the law of the land. That is a very important piece of being in the mental health field is how you represent yourself. And I tried to be very clear across you know every platform that I'm on that I am a psychologist in training. Right? I don't have a license yet. I do have the degree, so I'm still in training to get licensed. And I'm a psychologist, a mental health person. Yes, I, I do talk about things like you know media analysis and different things about like culture and ethnicity, but those are usually areas that are applicable to psychology and I bring my like perspective as a psychologist to them. The difference between someone like me and someone like Dr. Peterson is that he misrepresents himself many times in the public eye. He has called himself a neuroscientist. He has called himself an evolutionary biologist or a biologist. He has called himself other like slightly related terms. But at the end of the day, he is a clinical psychologist He is not a neuroscientist. He's not a neurosurgeon or a a neuropsychologist. Those are different things. He's not a biologist. He may know biology, right? I had to learn biology as part of my training. We have to learn about the brain. And, you know, even though psychologists don't prescribe medication in, in most contexts, we still have to learn, like, how the brain is impacted by medication, what to look out for, that we can help our patients advocate for themselves with their psychiatrist. You know, we need to know our lanes as psychologists. And although clinical psychology particularly is quite a broad lane, like there's a lot you can do with it, it still is a lane <laughs> and, and you have to stay in it. So I have heard speeches of this man saying, I'm a neuroscientist, I'm a biologist, and that is an inaccurate representation of his background. And I bring this up multiple times. I'm bringing this up to be very clear that when people are misrepresenting like what they do and it doesn't match up with what their actual like degrees are, 
then we have to be very careful about interpreting what they say. Anything you hear Dr. Peterson say about biology, we have to interpret with a grain of salt because he's not a biologist. He may have plenty of knowledge about biology. He may self-study. He, you know, he may be using the knowledge that he gained while practicing psychology, but it's not the same thing as a bi biologist. And if you talk to a biologist for more than 30 seconds, you'll be like, oh, this is very different. <laughs> they have a very different knowledge base than a psychologist. All of that really shows us how Peterson came into the public eye. And I think it is important to note that he came into the public eye for anti-trans rhetoric, right? For really focusing on this, like, this law that really just provided discrimination protection for trans people. But he essentially made the argument that, you know, dead naming or using the wrong pronouns for a trans person would result in uh, incarceration. Since then, he's really made a career for himself being this, like, on one hand, influencer, on the other hand, like, self-help guru. And some of the main talking points that you're going to hear Peterson talking about are as follows. One, that marginalized people are infantilized by a culture of victimhood. And this just essentially means that he doesn't believe marginalized people when they say they're being discriminated against. He believes that they should take more personal responsibility and that if they stopped acting like victims, they wouldn't have these problems. He often says that political correctness threatens freedom of thought and speech. This really is the same argument he was making about the law in Canada. And this is the same argument he's made about the Twitter situations that he should essentially be allowed to say whatever he wants, even if it's not very nice. And that there should be absolutely no consequences for it because any consequences are violating freedom of thought and speech. Even though you are free to say whatever you want. And the government won't put you in jail, but people can be mad at you. And I've said this multiple times. I said it in the Machine Gun Kelly episode, and I will say it again. Other people do not owe you politeness if you're going to be rude to them. This <laughs> is what it boils down to. Another point he makes is, this is really complicated, but he says, ideological orthodoxy undermines individual responsibility. And this is his more political argument that essentially, he's very anti-leftist. So if you have any politics that are more to the left he believes that, you know, a buying into this like ideal or this this set of beliefs is your way of giving up any personal responsibility you have for where your life is going. And that the only reason people become leftists is so that they don't have to take responsibility for their actions. <laughs> like, I, I don't have much to say about that except for I disagree. And I think that this is where you really do see the blending of his political theory and his his psychological training and it, it's a little more of an esoteric point so I don't, I don't know if I need to spend so much time on it so that that's just that point another point that he often makes is a society run as a patriarchy makes sense and stems mostly from men's competence because this is a feminist psychology podcast and I am a feminist psychologist I take a great umbrage <laughs> to this point and I'm going to talk more about how he has built this idea of hierarchy and patriarchy. I'll talk more about that later on, but I just want to note it here that most of Peterson's arguments boil down to hierarchy is natural, therefore it is good. And that leaves absolutely zero room for any conversation around changing structure of society, making space for different people advocating for power to be reallocated. There's, there's no space for that with Peterson, and he will react quite harshly to any opinion that is a, in opposition to his idea that patriarchy and hierarchy are natural and therefore good. He also talks a lot about how he doesn't think white privilege is real and thinks that it's a joke. Again, a point that I could spend thousands of hours talking about, but also undermines is undermined by this idea right that like if you hold a political ideology that is more to the left then you're 
trying to get out of individual responsibility and people who talk about white privilege in Peterson's mind are trying to get out of being responsible for their own actions and want to blame everything on white privilege. I don't agree with that. I'm just summarizing what his points are about this topic. And the last one to highlight is that he often makes this argument about cultural Marxism being sort of like the the gateway drug to totalitarianism. Now, here is your friendly reminder that if you hear phrases like cultural Marxism, it is an anti-Semitic phrase, and it is deeply rooted in a very odd theory of anti-Semitism. The reason why it is anti-Semitic is that the originating conspiracy theory that termed the phrase cultural Marxism was this theory that popped up in the 1930s that there was a group of Jewish philosophers that were escaping from Germany and were going to come to America. And because Marxism had not worked as an economic system, they were going to use Marxist values to target American cultural systems to convert the, the country of America into like a Marxist or communist place. How this is supposed to work, I'm very unclear how being a little more uh, equitable in our values would make us a communist country is also very unclear. And the term cultural Marxism like directly comes out of this conspiracy theory in, in the 30s. That is why if you hear people saying this term, you need to be very careful because it is a dog whistle for anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, because I think many people don't know the history of it, it becomes a very palatable term and is thrown around a lot like on the internet. And I hear it on Fox News if you listen to clips from there a lot. But you you do need to know the history of it. And so if you hear that term, cultural Marxism, if this is the only thing you take away from this episode, <laughs> know that that is what it is rooted in. This incredibly anti-Semitic theory that essentially Jewish people are infiltrating American culture to try to change the country from within. And that is absolutely absurd. Now, with all of those talking points that I just outlined that he, that he often comes back to, the idea of him having this like academic background and you know being a researcher and being a man of like literature and great reading is that it makes the points more palatable. He has this like veneer of credibility because of his degree. And of course, right? If you hear if you hear a doctor so and so saying something that adds credibility to it. It's like we all do that. It's not, I don't think this is like unique to him or to his audience. But if you hear someone saying, I'm Dr. So-and-so, it adds credibility. Why do you think Dr. Oz is so popular? It's not just because he, he was on Oprah, right? Because he also has the title and the degree to go along with the things that he's saying. And I think with people like Dr. Peterson, it, it lines up when he's speaking within his scope of practice. But often he speaks outside of his scope of practice. Like when he gives opinions about people's physical health, such as the woman who was the model on the Sports Illustrated cover. When he gives his opinions about climate science or climate change, he's not a climate scientist. When he gives his opinion about legal issues and constitutional amendments, he gets them wrong because he's not practicing within his scope of practice or he misses some of the nuance that someone who's within that field would know. And I, I pause here to really focus on this phrase scope of practice because that is so important in psychology and, and really in any like mental health area. But I, I'm speaking to psychology specifically. When you're going through grad school, like I just did, <laughs> you get trained on what is your scope of practice. And you're told, rightly so, that the only ethical way to practice psychology is to stay within your scope of practice. 
So this means that if I have a client come to me and say, you know, I want to start meds, my scope of practice is not medication and that needs to be very clear to my client. I can offer them the suggestion of, you know, maybe I can help you talk to a psychiatrist. Let's let's role play what you want to say to a psychiatrist, help you look for like things in the bios of the psychiatrist that you might potentially work with. I can do that kind of stuff. And I can talk to you about like, are you taking your meds every day? What's getting in the way of you taking your meds to medication management? But I can't prescribe you. I can't talk to you about the medications and what they'll do to your body because I don't know. And if I notice that our conversation is getting to anywhere outside of near the edge of my scope of practice, it's best ethical practice for me to say, you know, I really can't speak to that. I, I really encourage you to talk to your doctor. Same thing like if you're working with a therapist on anything like body image or improving physical health or dealing with chronic pain, there's so much a psychologist can do for you, right, to help you maybe learn techniques to manage pain through like mindfulness working through like, you know, the cognitive or automatic thoughts that pop up around your body image, stuff like that, you know, or even for like people with with terminal illnesses, psychologists can help like really reckon with what it means to be terminal and coming to the end of life. Like there are psychologists in hospitals and all of these settings because there are, are things that we can do to help people in those situations. But what we can't do is say, you need to do X, Y, and Z for your health. You you know, you need to lose weight or you need to exercise more. You need to eat this or that because we don't know. <laughs> we're, not, we're not trained on that. And although we can talk to you about the issues around it and we can help you advocate for yourself at the doctor's office, right? I, I know clinicians who will go to doctor's appointments with their patients, right? To sit there and be like, I'm here for support. I'm here for you if you feel overwhelmed. Like we, you know, I'm here to talk to you talk you through this process, but I'm not giving you medical advice. And so it is concerning that a person who is a psychologist like Dr. Peterson steps outside his scope of practice so much. Now, it's a little complicated when you're doing stuff like public facing advocacy or, or, you know, public facing influencing like what he does, because, you know, his audience are not his clients. So, I, you know, like on the show, right, I share opinions and I often give recommendations, but you always hear me couch it in. I'm not your therapist. Like seek out a provider if that's what you want to work on. And I think that's what's missing from Peterson's approach is that it would behoove him. It would be more ethical of him to say, here's the advice that I have for you. But, you know, I don't know you individually. And if you really want to work through your individual issues, then I recommend you seek individual help or group therapy, you know, whatever he wants to recommend. And there really aren't any consequences you can have for speaking outside your scope of practice if like you don't have a license. Like Dr. Phil is a good example of this. Dr. Phil surrendered his license when he started, well, not when he started doing a show, but partway through doing the Dr. Phil show, he surrendered his license because the licensing board in California was like, this is weird. Like, what what are you doing? You're not, you know, you're not these people's therapists. They're just coming on your show why are you providing individualized like psychological services? So Dr. Phil is not a licensed psychologist. He is Dr. Phil because he has a doctorate, but he does not have the license required to provide specialized or quality mental health services. And so what he does on his show is advice giving, right? It has to be a little bit different. He's he's not supposed to be doing psychological interventions, but he can be essentially like a life coach. Same thing with Peterson. Like he does not need to be clinically or, or like licensed, right? He doesn't need to have a a license in the US to give advice in a book or on a TV show or on a podcast. However, although like no one's going to come and strip his degree or strip his license, 
I think as a professional and as part of the field, there is a little bit of, even if it's not 100% unethical, like it's a little icky, right? That you're giving so much advice about things that is not within your scope of knowledge. It's a very fine line that has to be walked for psychologists who are in the public eye, even if they're not doing clinical services, right? Like Peterson may not be seeing any clients right now, but that doesn't mean that he, he, he shouldn't like act ethically or act within the scope of practice of psychology. So all, all of that to just say like everything that he says should be taken with a grain of salt because of like what, you know, we don't know what his mission is, particularly when he's saying things that are outside of his scope of practice. And, you know, to be careful about when you hear things like cultural Marxism, because those are dog whistles for anti-Semitism. And whether Peterson knows that or not, it doesn't matter. It's still a whistle for it. And so the people who, who believe that, who believe those theories and believe that, you know, horrible things about Jewish people and that, you know, the history there, they're going to be more drawn to him because he's using the words that they know and they attribute meaning to. So what else does this guy do besides make political statements and dog whistle anti-Semitism? He focuses a lot on self-help. And I know I've mentioned this before, but I want to talk about the kind of brand of self-help that he does. In general, his advice of or his brand of self-help is, is quite blaming or shaming. He uses a lot of language that is honestly quite harsh. He uses a lot of terms like idiot, dumb, you know, you're lame, you're stupid. He will he will say that in his speeches um, or his, his talks. And it, it's very harsh. And while, again, I acknowledge that it is not clinical services that he's developing or delivering, the language and the way he delivers them are not in line with what, you know, more modern therapeutic modalities would do. There is, you know, a necessary need for like setting boundaries and reinforcing behavior within therapeutic settings. Like, I understand that. But the like reality is that the way of delivering those boundaries, the way of reinforcing that behavior is really important to the well-being of the person you're working with. And I would generalize that to like, if you're delivering self-help, it's important that the way that you present yourself when you deliver the message, because that is how you model for the people you're trying to help how to behave in the future. And so if Peterson is modeling this like very harsh and aggressive method of communication when he talks to his audience, then his audience is going to be more likely to engage in those types of communication when they go off into the world. And while I don't particularly believe that Jordan Peterson should be 100% responsible for everything that his listeners do, I think that there is a general responsibility to communicate in a way that is like uplifting, that is positive, and that doesn't like demean people who are coming to you for help. Like, for example, let's say if I decided that this show was going to have like a call-in portion, and I wanted people to call in and like ask for advice. I will not be doing that. I'm not interested in that. <laughs> let's say that I did. And then when people started to call in and I was giving you advice and I was telling you that you're stupid or you're dumb, that you've never done this before, or you know, what a stupid question for bringing that up. What kind of like precedent does that set? And how is that advice going to be taken in if I'm using that like kind of language? And how likely are you then to turn around and give advice to someone in your life with that kind of tone of like, well, you didn't do this, so you're stupid or that's that's idiotic. He says that a lot. It's idiotic. It's that's not appropriate. And that's not a nice way to communicate with people. And, you know, I'm not trying to be like tone police and say everybody needs to be like rainbows and sunshine. But again, if you're in the field and your whole brand is about helping people, then help people help people to communicate better and model that in the way that you communicate with them or with other people. 
he also does this thing when he's giving self-help or he's giving talks where he purposely misrepresents a topic or argument so that he can make his own points. The exhibit A is the way he misrepresented the law in Canada so that he could make his points about free speech. He did this with the the Sports Illustrated thing, right? Where when people were upset with him for like body shaming someone, he turned it into this argument about inherent beauty standards and you know cited a bunch of articles that I went over in my episode that really did not match the 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 point that he was trying to make. But he will do this this technique in his lectures, essentially setting up a straw man so that he can then make his own point. And and my advice, I guess, to Dr. Peterson would be just make your point. Just make your own point. Don't misrepresent a topic so that you can make a point. Just make the point that you want to make. It would be like if on my episodes I summarize like the movie or show I'm talking about completely wrong so that I can get mad about it, right? There's plenty to get mad about. <laughs> but, but you know, you don't have to make up stuff to be upset about or make up stuff so that you can make an argument. If a show doesn't have anything in it that I want to talk about, then it's not a good candidate for this show, right? For for me to do an episode on it. Same with you, Dr. Peterson. What you can do is if there's, you know, a, a, something happening in, in culture that you want to respond to, but it really doesn't have any way to fit into the arguments that you want to make, then leave it alone. There's no reason to bring it up. The other things that he does in terms of self-help is he sells books and he sells a personality test. So I want to talk about the personality test first because I feel like this is not as commonly talked about. I know his books are talked about a lot more, but I actually learned about this from a YouTube video that I was watching about Jordan Peterson where they showed his website. And he has two main things that you can buy. You can buy a course he teaches about personality which I assume is probably like a master class. I don't know. I haven't taken it. But a class on like personality theory and the like. And then you can buy a personality test. The personality test that he lets you pay for is a personality test that is available online. It's called the Big Five. And I actually have a link to it that I will put into the bio. Um, But the Big Five is a personality test that essentially breaks down our personalities into five categories. Extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness. Openness to experience. The big five are essentially some of the most well-normed personality traits that that we've found in the field. You know, you can go across cultures, you can go across times, and these personality traits pop up. And in research, we often look at, you know, these types of big five personality factors with other factors in life like achievement or uh, in like org psych, a lot of it is with management styles or management outcomes. We'll even look at it with like, you know, mental health conditions or outcomes in therapy. Like if you're more X, Y, or Z on the big five, are you more likely to do well in therapy? It's an interesting tool for research. And if you're a personality theory person, like you'll be into the big five. Jordan Peterson is a personality guy. He's a personality like theory guy. So it makes sense. What I don't understand is why he's charging people to take a test that you can take for free online. Because again, he's not meeting with you one-on-one to do like a psych di- psychodiagnostic testing battery, right? That that you have to pay for, right? If, you're, if you want to get tested to find if you have ADHD or a learning disability, or you just want testing to kind of you know, learn more about your intelligence, you have to pay for that service, right? Because you're going to go to a psychologist who is trained in assessment and they're going to do the services for you and they're going to tell you how recommendations based on the results that you get, right? That That's a service that you would pay for. However, 
if you're going to take a test online, if you're going to fill out, you know, little bubbles on the internet, and then you're going to get a printout at the end that says, here's your personality traits, here's where you score on each one, that is absolutely not worth any money. <laughs> and you can do that on free for free on the internet everywhere. Again, like I have one that I'm going to link in the bio if you just want to check it out to see what it's about. If you just Google big five personality tests, like they're going to pop up. They're not going to be the best version of the test. You know, they're not going to be like super standardized in the way that it would be if you, you know, went in person or, you know, met with a psychologist. But for an internet personality assessment, it's, it's the big five is like the best that you can get. So he charges people to take this and then he gives you, you can buy a little course where you learn about it, which I'm sure for people is there could be valuable information in there. I don't know anything about the content of the course. So, you know, I really can't speak to that. But I do want to point out that like when people are selling you things like a course or, you know, a a test, a personality test, we want to be very aware of the Barnum effect. And I've done an episode on this in the past. It's part of the mini episodes. The Barnum effect is essentially where if someone gives you a description of your personality, it's going to read as very accurate, right? This is how things like zodiac signs work, your your horoscope works. You read it and you believe it because it has general enough principles that apply to you and our brains are like, sure, why not? And so if you're paying someone like this Peterson's, you know, personality course to give you a printout essentially of what your personality traits are, be aware that the Barnum effect is going to be in play and you're going to believe it. It's going to sound very accurate to your personality. The reality may be, and again, I don't know what the content of his course is, so I, I don't know if maybe he helps you to interpret it better, but if you just take a big five test, you could compare your printout to, you know, a hundred different people and there's probably going to be, be people that have the same exact printout that you have. There's only five personality traits. There's really only so many distributions we have of, of the, the different types of of personality traits and the different levels you can be on. So it's highly likely that it's not as super individualized results. And that's, if that's what you want, that's fine. Like more power to you. If that's what you want to pay for, that's what you want to pay for. I'm not trying to tell people to like not engage in a service that they're interested in, but I'm just saying that we need to be careful about this and that Peterson as a psychologist knows about this effect and knows that this is something that is happening. I also think that this could be a service that starts to border a little bit on like, what is your role in someone's life as a psychologist offering a course on personality? Is it an educational course? Is it a course that's geared toward you changing your personality or changing your life to fit your personality? Are you giving advice? Like, I think it starts to get a little bit complicated then about like, what exactly are you offering? And I know there are people who have like YouTube channels that, you know, are mental health professionals and they teach things and it's fantastic. And if you went on YouTube right now, you could probably learn all about like how to do DBT skills or how to like do act mindfulness. There's like thousands of videos on YouTube. I think it's great. I think mental health services should be more accessible to people and it it often is useful to us, the professionals, to have all of these resources to share with the people we work with. Just like with the scope of practice thing, there's really nothing that's like punishable or, you know, like would ethically be wrong or would, you know, get a license stripped. But these are just like, I think these gray areas that for the people out there who are listening, who are in the field of psychology that, you know, I think we need to be wrestling with. And for everyone else who's listening, I think it's important for you to be aware of these, these kind of like ambiguous areas, because I want patients and consumers to feel empowered to make decisions about what they do with their time and their money. 
I don't know how often these conversations are had. And again, something I think is missing from the critique of Peterson is what is the role he's playing in people's lives as someone who is a psychologist without a clinical license providing advice or certain services. And I also want to be careful because I have not taken the course. I don't know what's in it. I don't know if it's advice or not. And so, you know, I don't want to make any accusations. I just want to kind of like present this as a potential area of conversation. And so if there are any listeners out there who have taken it and you know have some insight on it, I would really appreciate you sharing that with me. Not the course, but like your insights on it. And I think this is a conversation that could continue to happen. I'm sure I will revisit this man multiple times on this podcast because he keeps acting up. He also has another like web-based service where he teaches you like essentially a writing intervention where you like write, you go through these writing prompts. And that's one's a little more like personal development. It, it does seem to be based on what essentially we would call narrative therapy, but it does seem to be clear that it's not a therapeutic intervention. It, it is more of like a personal development, like lifestyle intervention. Uh, and I, again, I don't know a lot of what that's about, but that's a big thing in, in Peterson's work is like um, storytelling, myths, and and all that stuff. So I, I think, honestly, that one I think fits a little bit more into his whole like vibe, <laughs> more so than the personality stuff. But again, just another service that he he does charge people for. And so, you know, if you're under the impression that like people like him are only making money off of like YouTube views, it that's not the reality. He has many sources of income. And so being kicked off of Twitter is not going to significantly impact his income. And this is a conversation more about cancel culture um, that we don't need to have right now. <laughs> um, but I just did want to point those out. That those are two income sources, his psychology course and his like self-directed narrative course. Then he has two books, two book, well, two books that matter. <laughs> he has several other books, but two of his most popular books are called 12 Rules for Life and 12 More Rules for Life. So the first book, 12 Rules for Life, it's hard to say, 12 Rules for Life <laughs> has exactly that, 12. The rules are, as to, well, this is the like um, tagline he gives them. <laughs> and then there he like goes into them. So rule one is stand up straight with your shoulders back. Two, treat yourself like you are someone you are responsible for helping. Three, make friends with people who want the best for you. Four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to someone, not to who someone else is today. Five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Eight, tell the truth or at least don't lie. Nine, assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. 10. Be precise in your speech. 11. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. And 12. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. I think that last one is supposed to be like, stop and smell the roses. <laughs> it's not specifically like you need to pet every cat. But you can see how from like on the surface level, like some of this stuff is fantastic advice, right? Like, you know, stand up straight is good for your back, right? Fix your posture. You know, surround yourself with people who do want the best for you. Try to tell the truth as much as possible, a lot of the stuff, it's 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 meaningful advice, and I know that there are lots of people who say that this type of advice has really helped their life, and I think that it's, in terms of self-help, super useful and can be really, sometimes you just need to hear someone say it, right? You just need to, or read it, and just need to kind of rededicate yourself to stuff in your life that, that you wanted to, and I think that's what Jordan Peterson does well, is like reminding people to sort of like get back on the path of their life. And 
I, I hear sometimes, too, a lot of the critique is it boils down to his advice is, like, clean your room. And it, it may be that, right, that his advice is to, to clean your room. But especially for people who are really struggling with depression or with, like, a sense of hopelessness, that might be the thing that they need to hear at that time is that they just need to hear someone tell them you, you, you should clean your room. My personal style would be to deliver it in a little more gentle way than Peterson delivers it. His writing style is similar to his speaking style where it can be quite like harsh and aggressive. But at the end of the day, like the 12 rules for life are at at their core a self-help book. And self-help in itself is not bad. I think that there are times when self-help is necessary, um, particularly for people who are maybe waiting to get in, in touch with mental health services. Or for people who wouldn't meet the criteria for certain like mental health services but still want a little something. Or even like after you're done with treatment, you want something to just kind of keep sustaining you. Plenty of reasons where self-help would be useful. And so, you know, I think this is a, a thing that gets a lot of critique from him is the book. And there are valid critiques that I've heard out there. And I think that it's important to critique like the the written words that we have from people. But my opinion is that it is his like public facing persona and what he says in like debates and lectures that are is more damaging than the book. And so whenever I'm working with someone who has encountered Peterson's work, I don't try to say like, you should never read 12 Rules for Life, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's bad that you did that. But I, you know, I try to be respectful of the the good advice or good things that they may have gotten out of the book. And I do think that it's important to identify areas where, like, maybe Peterson and I, like, agree or align. And, like, you know, I agree with him that figuring out what it is you want to do with your life and orienting your life around achieving that goal is good advice, is what we do in therapy all the time, right? We ask people, what are your goals and what can we do to help you live a life that is worth living or a life that you value? Same thing for the the second book he wrote, The 12 More Rules. There's some stuff in there that is useful and, you know, can be good self-help. Where I think I digress from him is that most of his arguments in his book are based on this idea that like chaos and order are opposed to each other and that chaos is like inherently bad. And so this is a big thing that comes out of his training in Jungian psychology. And Jungian psychology is it's a little wild. It's pretty wild. <laughs> I know I've talked about it before in some earlier episodes in this idea of like archetypes. It's really useful when looking at media like what I do on this show. And, and a lot of Peterson's work is looking at media or symbols in media and from a Jungian perspective. So I I see how it fits. Jungian psychologists, or at least Peterson's brand of it, have a big reliance on myths as explanations for cultural phenomenons. And myths tend to use a lot of repetitive imagery or themes, which Jungians then translate into archetypes that they apply to, to, to personality types. Not an inherently bad theory, not an inherently like bad approach, And I think it can be really interesting to look at these similarities across cultures and times. Like, what does it tell us about human beings or the human race that many cultures have myths of heroes that follow the same journey of, like, heeding a call, making a mistake, and then righting the wrong to save the day, right? I mean, you can even look at, like, Greek myths and Roman myths. They're the same people. (laughs) They just have different names. (laughs) Or if you look at, like, myths across ancient cultures, even though we were separated by... Uh, you know, land barriers or by the sea, 
people had similar creation myths, right? Most cultures have a creation myth that involves the story of an entity creating the world and it being like good at the beginning and then something getting introduced that maybe messes it up. You know, the Bible has this, indigenous myths have this. It's, these are myths that tell similar stories. And that is where the Jungian idea of the collective unconscious comes from, that even though we are separated by time and space, we come back to these same stories and these same myths. So again, interesting. I think that is cool and like a cool theory to throw around. I don't necessarily know how useful it can be in like day-to-day clinical work, but I'm not trained in it. So uh, you know, I can't know that. Um, I think there are people out there who still do Jungian psychology and I would love to hear from them <laughs> about like what it's like. And again, I think the theory is really interesting. The issue is that Jung himself, Carl Jung himself, was a fascist. (laughs) He was, yes, he was a big fan of both Franco and Mussolini, so the dictators in Spain and Italy, and really threw his support behind those dictators, fascist dictators. And so I think that this leaves some room for right-wing fascist nonsense to kind of slip into Jung's work and for people who really buy into the theory, be able to to align that way. And I think this mostly shows up in the chaos versus order conversation, in that order is prioritized in Jungian psychology over chaos. And what's more ordered than a fascist dictator? No one. They're, they're like, they're the epitome of order in the mind of like, you know, if we're using this like binary of chaos versus order, I think that many people would argue that totalitarian dictators bring quite a lot of chaos, but I'm not going to get into the political side of it. I do want to talk about, though, how Peterson's Jungian background and his big believer in chaos versus order can be damaging. One of the ways it's damaging is that he associates chaos with being feminine and being the opposite of order, which is a masculine trait. And so he sees the the chaos order binary being feminine versus masculinity or femininity versus masculinity which means men are inherently more ordered, they should lead, and they deserve their place at the top of the hierarchy. This is what I talked about at the beginning of the episode. This is one of his justifications for why hierarchy, particularly patriarchy, is natural and good. That because order is a more masculine trait, men are more likely to have more order. Order is necessary to run society. So therefore, men who are ordered deserve to be at the top of society and make the decisions for the rest of us chaotic feminine people. In case anyone is unclear on my values, that I do not believe this. <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do not believe this at all. And I think this is an oversimplification of the principles in Jungian psychology of archetypes. And I, I did have one professor in, in grad school who knew a little, bit, a little bit about Jungian psychology. He was actually my family systems, like family theory professor. And we talked about Jungian psychology a little bit. He was really into archetypes too. And that was where I, I got introduced to this idea of like myths and archetypes being an explanation for um, different like themes we keep seeing popping up in personality. And so I, I, I get it. I'm glad I, I had that experience. The way that the professor I had in grad school taught us was that everyone has a feminine and a masculine side and that the, I guess, goal of Jungian psychology would be to help people to balance, to find the balance between masculine and feminine and that all of the archetypes discussed within the theory have these two sides to them often referred to as the shadow side and the light side and that we don't want to completely eliminate either side but find the harmony 
And so this should apply to the feminine and masculine or chaos and order archetypes or binary as well. That really what we're looking to achieve is that middle ground. And I would argue that, you know, things like creativity are really about that balance of allowing, you know, yourself to be in touch with chaos enough to to create and that you know you could even make the argument that entropy you know chaos is the driver of the universe is the is the driver behind life and creation and i you know i think from peterson's point you could easily make the chaos make the argument that chaos is masculine and we could say that men are most chaotic because men are the ones who start wars and men are the one who are more aggressive And that really this idea of like assigning feminine or masculine to these categories is arbitrary and we could change our mind tomorrow about (laughs) what what attribution we gave them. And so to then like predicate the entire justification for patriarchy on this arbitrary decision that chaos is feminine and that there should be no balance between chaos and order is it's crazy to then like try to support patriarchy over that. And I'm sure that people could be like, well, you're biased because you're a feminist and like you inherently don't believe in the patriarchy, blah, 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 blah. But I would want to see more of an argument for patriarchy than just saying, well, order is masculine. So therefore men should be like on the top of whatever, on top of the world. And it, I, I think it's just, it's a weak argument. And then to have Peterson's approach is like, this is the smartest argument that he come up with. And he's such an intellectual and, you know, he's an academic. And again, that veneer of like, he has the degree and the title makes this seem like an important argument. And the reality is, is that you could just as easily argue it the opposite way. You could just as easily say that men are more chaotic or that masculinity is more chaotic. So we should quash the masculine parts of ourselves and allow women to sit at the top. And I think it also is this is the reason why he's so anti-trans and so transphobic is that he he can't understand the idea of balancing the masculine and feminine or of identifying archetypes that are not gendered in that way. You know, actually, I think I would be super interested to see a Jungian psychologist develop like non-binary archetypes or to look at like how non-binary or gender non-conforming identities like fit into certain archetypes. Like, are you more a mage versus a king? You know, like where, where do those archetypes include people who are outside or, you know, in addition to the gender binary of, of male and female? And like, because Peterson believes this so intently and believes that it has to be this way, that chaos is feminine and women are feminine, therefore women are chaotic and blah, 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 blah. That's why he like absolutely cannot let go of the horrible things he says to trans people. And he has this like such intense belief that gender has to go a certain way and you have to fit into your archetype and he can't like allow for any other possible explanation. And I think there is a way to even like use his worldview or use his foundational philosophy of Jungian psychology to understand trans and gender nonconforming identities. I think that it's possible and I'm sure there are people out there doing it. And it really just is is really about like opening yourself to experience. So call back to his personality test, being open to the experience and being like willing to hear other people speak. But because he's decided that this is the way the world should work and it is natural and therefore it is good, that there can be no discussion of any other opportunity or possibility for how the world could organize itself. So he just immediately shuts everything down and shuts down trans people and their identities, their existence. And that's where I think that 
I disagree or this is where I take umbrage again with the Jungian perspective he has is that it's fine for it to be like a philosophical view or like, you know, an interesting thought experiment or even to like inform your clinical practice. But when this idea becomes like a weapon to use against people that you don't like or that you feel don't fit into your worldview, well, then it's throw it out. It's bad. It's bad philosophy. It's bad foundational theory. It's bad assumptions. And we need to work on developing ways of understanding the world from a, you know, a, a purpose, a perspective of psychology that includes all people and doesn't pathologize people because they fall out of what we consider to be the norm. And my hope would be is that Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, a psychologist, would be able to be flexible enough in his understanding of the world to accommodate these different identities into his worldview. And what I think is important for people who listen to Peterson to take away is that he presents this as though this is how the world is and how it should be because it is natural. But the reality is, is that this is how he sees the world through the lens of this theory developed by Carl Jung, a fanboy of fascists. (laughs) So you can cite all the sources you want about like ancient societies or Jungian philosophy or whatever. But the reality is, is that you've created your worldview out of the theory of someone who idolized or at least, you know, was a fan of dictators. So clearly prioritized a certain type of order and subjugation over other ways of living. And that has now trickled down into your worldview. And because that's how it's always been to you, it feels natural and therefore should be natural to everyone. But not everyone has come to their worldview or their philosophy in the same way. And a better approach, I think a more cognitively flexible approach, would be able to take in what Peterson says about the world, take in what other people say about the world, and decide for yourself what you want to keep and what you want to throw out. And maybe the idea of archetypes is philosophically or psychologically interesting to you, and you do want to understand the world through archetypes. Fine. Great. Go ahead. The difference, though, is do you want to weaponize those archetypes or weaponize that worldview against people who are different than you? And if you do want to do that, then I think that we need to slow down and think about why is that important to do and what meaning does that bring to you? And is it worth your cognitive capital or your psychological capital to be constantly trying to slot people in the archetypes and then treating them differently based on where they they fit? I would say no. (laughs) I hope that I have demonstrated how this underlying philosophy is so dangerous and how Peterson's understanding of it is so dangerous, that he has locked himself into this understanding of the world and it can only be one way. And although it's not an excuse for his behavior, I think it does better explain why he reacted so negatively to the, the law changing in Canada or to being asked to do HR training at his his place of work or you know being called out for saying things about Elliot Page. The way he responds to them so aggressively is because he's locked himself into this worldview and male people can only be one way and female people can only be the other way and there's no room for any other type of people at all. And like in fact this worldview doesn't even have space for like women who identify with more masculine traits but still are identifies women, right? Like there's no space for for men who know that they are men, like feel that their identity is as a man, but embrace more feminine traits, so embrace like softness or embrace like things like painting your nails, right? Like, like lots of men paint their nails nowadays, which I think is fantastic. And that doesn't fit into Peterson's like clear types and it doesn't fit into his idea of order. And my hypothesis, although I'm not 
producing a diagnosis here, but my hypothesis would be that because of the things that Peterson has gone through in his life that he's been open about, the suffering and struggles he has gone through, he considers that those are attributed to chaos. And so if he can control and order his life down to the nitty gritty, down to every last second, then those things won't happen to him again. And I can empathize with that. I can empathize with that feeling of wanting to absolutely control every second of your life so that you don't feel out of control and feel like there is a meaning and a purpose to everything that you do and that nothing can hurt you if you can be in control of everything, that order will bring safety. I, I see it. I get it. And I wish it were that easy, right? I wish that we could sit down and decide we want to take control of our lives and then nothing ever bad would happen to us again. But the reality is, is that we live in a world that has both chaos and order, right? That is balanced between the two. And things are bound to happen outside of our control. Things are bound to happen internally, externally, outside of our control. Like when I say internally, I mean that like, you know, people can like slip into a depressive episode without like, you know, doing anything, right? Like just kind of going through your day normally, people can have like a psychotic break. It's something that's happening inside of you, inside of your brain that you literally couldn't control. Like there was nothing you could have done to prevent that, to control that. And I wouldn't be surprised if Peterson has experienced things like that himself, where he just suddenly slips into, you know, whatever is going on with him. He struggles with substance use. I'm sure that that feels very out of control. And I feel deep empathy for him for that, for that feeling of being out of control and just wanting to like grip it and get, get on top of it, right? And be in control of it. And I think that it is important for us as consumers of his messages or, you know, consumers on platforms where his messages are, is to understand that idea that clinging to order is a way to prevent yourself from feeling out of control for everyone, right? This is not just specific to, to Jordan B. Peterson, but a feeling of clinging to control, of clinging to order makes us feel like we're going to be okay and things are going to turn out, are going to come up millhouse, right, <laughs> for us. And unfortunately, the evidence of the world does not bear out against that. The evidence that we see around us is that things happen for no reason. You know, car accidents happen every day for no, you know, for no reason. Sometimes they're for a reason. But you know what I mean? Like bad things happen. People get diagnosed with cancer for no reason, for no, you know, no fault of their own. People get diagnosed with mental health conditions for no fault of their own. You know, people grow up in abusive households, not because of anything they've done, but because of the chaos in their lives, right? And the, the chaos of their parents' lives. And some of those things are the worst things that will ever happen to you and will, you know, uproot your life and uproot your mental well-being and uproot your sense of safety. And that's horrible. And I wish that no one had to go through that. And we know that that is how the world is, that there are moments of chaos that come out of nowhere. And when we try to shut them down or control them by order... What we're really doing is being inflexible and not allowing ourselves to be open and accepting of what's happening to us. And we can't work with things from a place of, of shutting them down. So if you listen to Peterson's work and you agree with it, I'm not going to, I'm not saying stop, right? I'm not saying like you, you can never listen to him again. I would suggest maybe reading his stuff versus watching all the stuff that he does because I think he's really spiraling in his you know more recent work but also hold that idea in your head of like is it possible to just apply order to every situation to control everything and to never suffer again I don't think so I really don't think that's possible and so understanding that if your worldview relies on complete control of the environment and yourself which the environment includes the people around you, you're not going to get very far in your in your life. You're not going to get very far in your 
recovery and your well-being and your goals. There has to be space. We're looking for the balance. If you're into the Jungian thing, you have to balance the masculine and feminine. You have to balance chaos and order. Again, great conversations to have with your therapist if you are looking for that or, you know, just conversations to have with the people around you. I would just really encourage you to carefully examine this content that you're taking in. That's what we do on this show, right? We examine the content that's being presented to us. And I hope I've demonstrated, especially when I have guests on, of like two people can watch the same thing and take it in very differently. And so it's it behooves us to have these conversations about how we are seeing things, how we are taking them in. It, it, it benefits us to, to be open to different experiences and different perspectives. And we cannot do that when we rely on order and controlling every experience around us. Now, I realize that this episode has gotten quite long and I do have some more stuff that I wanted to talk about, but I think I'm going to cut it for now. And if you'd like to hear the rest of what I was going to talk about, I can do it in another episode, um, like a part two, or I can wait for maybe a little bit longer to talk about Peterson's more current work and how that applies to some of this stuff. But what I do want to end this episode on, because it sets up my next episode, is to talk about the recent, um, I guess, like incident where Olivia Wilde indicated that one of her characters in Don't Worry Darling was based on Peterson. So in just like a brief summary, um, when Don't Worry Darling came out, you know, Olivia Wilde was doing press for it. And when she was interviewed, one of her interviews, she said that she actually based uh, Chris Pine's character on Jordan Peterson. She called him a pseudo intellectual hero to the incel community. Um, and then described incels as like disenfranchised, mostly white men who believe they are entitled to sex from women and they believe that society has robbed them, that the idea of feminism is working against nature and then we must put back into the correct place, which is exactly what I was talking about, right, with order and control. She then goes on to say, Jordan Peterson is someone that legitimizes certain aspects of their movement because he's a former professor, he's an author, he wears a suit, so they feel like this is a real philosophy that should be taken seriously. And I think that... Uh, it was important for me to go through in this episode the way that he has built his philosophy and how it has some blind spots or has some areas that uh, it does not address. And uh, I want you to have that in the back of your head when you listen to the Don't Worry Darling episode that will come out next week because Olivia Wilde, I think, hit the nail on the head here. And I hope to demonstrate in that episode how that character of Chris Pine and like being based on Jordan Peterson's work really does support this idea that like men deserve certain things from women and men deserve to be in control. And I also agree with her that he dresses up in a nice suit. He has his like degrees and his like accolades behind him and it lends more um, like credence to his his beliefs. However, equally important in this issue was then how Peterson responded to Olivia Wilde when asked about her comments on, I think it was Piers Morgan's show. Um, so Piers Morgan like told Peterson like this is what she said about you and he was like it's true uh people have known me for a long time or people have been after me for a long time because I've been speaking to disaffected young men he then started to cry which I you know I don't think it's a good idea to make fun of men when they cry because there should be space for men to to cry and so I want to be careful with this but Peterson's crying was odd in that he was crying about this idea that like, I guess essentially he was like crying for incels and saying like, these men are so sad and they're so alienated and lonesome and everyone's always picking on them. And the Im implicit thing there is like, if they just had a woman pay attention to them, maybe they wouldn't be this way. 
And I think like his way of talking about incels this way removes the responsibility that people who participate in incel communities on the internet, like it removes their responsibility for how they treat other people. And as Peterson is so big into individual responsibility, this struck me as very odd that like, you know, here is someone, someone is reading him a quote that says, you're the hero to incels and incels like treat women poorly because they think that, you know, feminism is wrong and women should be put in their place. And Peterson's response is not to say, those men should take responsibility for their actions and that's not what I preach or, you know, teach, but for him to just like to break down and to say that, you know, these people are piled on and like the most vulnerable essentially in society was odd and doesn't align with his so-called standards. And I would hope that Peterson can then take that experience of feeling so much empathy for a group he views as alienated and apply it to other groups that he alienates, like all trans people or all gender nonconforming people. And so I think that's where I get frustrated with with him and what could be seen as like performative emotional expression and why I want to be careful because I'm not saying that because he's a man, he shouldn't cry. I think he can cry about whatever he wants to. What I worry about is that this this like use of tearfulness or this use of like being overwhelmed with emotion for this one group of people who are already like honestly quite privileged cannot then be generalized to other groups of people. Like I I don't think people need to be going on TV and like crying over trans people. I think that that could also be weird, but like you have this deep well of emotion, sir, a pull from it, apply it to the other people that you engage with. What if you could tap into a little bit of that feeling of how sad you are for quote-unquote disenfranchised men and apply that to people who are disenfranchised. I I don't understand why you're not able to do that. And maybe this is me getting a little too personal, but I I would hope that people who watch this content could see like you can apply this perspective to different groups of people. You could apply it to women. You could apply it to trans people. You could apply it to gay people. You could apply it to people of color. Like the well of emotion is there. So let's use it, buddy. Let's let's go. I want to see you crying for everybody. And I will get into this more in the next episode that I do on Don't Worry Darling, more about like how insult culture and this idea of the hierarchy of men and women, you know, is very damaging to both men and women. But I do wanted to have this be the lead off because I think you you need to understand Peterson's philosophy to understand how Chris Pine's character is based off of him. And based on what I saw in the movie and what Olivia Wilde has said, I think she understands his um, philosophy. She understands the stuff that he's preaching or he's teaching. I always say preach, but he's not a he's not a preacher. He's just he's just a guy. Um, the stuff that Peterson teaches, like Olivia Wilde, clearly has an understanding of that, and so I hope that you guys have an understanding of it to apply to the next episode. Of course, I can't go through everything, and I've already had to cut so much out. Um, but I hope that it is enough to have a basic understanding. And the I think the key takeaway that I want you to have is one the anti-Semitism thing like just be really really careful when you hear people saying cultural Marxism it is a dog whistle for anti-Semitism and is deeply rooted in a very odd conspiracy theory about Jewish people and two that this idea of order versus chaos is interesting interesting philosophically an interesting idea but can be weaponized against people and is actually not really the core of Jungian psychology the core of Jungian psychology should be to find balance between these things. And Peterson has twisted it to say that we should lean more heavily on order than we should on chaos. So with that, I just want to say thank you for listening 
through the whole episode. I know it is a lot and I feel like I talked really fast, but I wanted to get it all out there. And I do really want to hear from people if you've taken his course, his like personality course, or, you know, if you engage with his content, like, how did I do with summarizing it? Like, how did I do with my points? I want to hear from you and have a dialogue um, about some of this stuff. So it's not a call-in show, but you can email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. You can reach out on any of the social medias that I have tagged below. I, I would like to hear from you and maybe have a conversation about some of this stuff. So with that, I just want to say again, thank you for listening and I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.